This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And today we are going to reflect on well, many things actually, but with a big focus on Scotland. Do you remember last year, you know, it seems a long time ago now, where virtually every week uh, Westminster politics via this uh, crazy government seemed to be imploding. The Johnson collapse, then the Truss collapse and so on. And Nicola Sturgeon, then First Minister, must have been watching in Scotland thinking, wow, this is great material for us. And now from well, well I'm, I'm in London, looking at what is happening with the SNP, you kind of, each day there's a twist or turn, which um, is quite hard to grasp. There's an ongoing police investigation, so none of us know what the outcome of that will be. But there is this sense of a party that has been mighty, is in trouble on lots of different levels, how it manages itself, obviously, but a kind of identity crisis. Um, and politics is a partly about casting a spell. Uh, a party, a, a governing party or a party that aspires to govern has to appear almost self-confident without qualification um, and with an absolute clear, exciting sense of momentum. And when that spell is broken, there are consequences. Now, it's impossible to work out what they will be in Scotland with huge implications for the rest of the UK yet. Uh, but somebody who is watching this with great uh, interest, and of course, subjective interest, is Douglas Alexander. Douglas Alexander uh, was a cabinet minister, then worked uh, uh, with, uh, I think it was Shadow Foreign Secretary. He's had lots of posts uh, in the Ed Miliband era. That ended in defeat for Ed Miliband and Douglas Alexander lost his seat. He's now standing again for the UK general election in Scotland. Um, and so he's had vast experience of the politics of Scotland, the politics of Labour in Scotland, um, as well as on the UK stage. So I thought I would uh, catch up with him and uh, have his take. He's an absolutely, he always, he's like us lot, he delves deep in politics. Now, as I say, he's delving deep at the moment in a specific context. He's standing to be uh, an, a Labour MP in Scotland, so it is subjective. And don't worry, those of you who remain passionately in favour of independence for Scotland, we will hear that case at some point as well. Um, but as I say, uh, Douglas always delves deep. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I caught up with him. And this is our conversation. Douglas Alexander, thanks so much for joining us. Um, now, it's some time since I interviewed you or arguably had cause to interview you because you lost your seat in 2015. 
And unlike quite a few of your colleagues from that era, you've decided to try and get back to the House of Commons. You've got a seat in uh, Scotland. Why, why? I know you're a political addict, but I know a lot of political addicts and they haven't done it. Why have you decided to uh, seek a return to the Commons? Well, truthfully, I've been incredibly fortunate in the work that I've been able to do over the last what, seven, almost eight years. So um, I've certainly gained a perspective outside of politics, whether that's being a senior fellow at Harvard, working uh, with an international law firm, um, working with charities and a range of different organizations. So uh, I wasn't contemplating that I would step back or at least attempt to step back into the uh, role of public service. But I realized, notwithstanding all of those opportunities that have come my way, that I care passionately about Scotland. I care passionately about social justice. And it felt to me that actually the time was right to try and put my shoulder back to the wheel. So uh, that's where I've been for the last few months, working first to be selected and then to take the message onto the doorsteps. But it's been it's been a surprise to me almost, the depth of commitment that I realised had not actually receded during all those years when I was enjoying myself. I'm a Scottish Presbyterian, as you may know, Steve, and I could hear my dad's voice in my head saying, you're not put on this earth to enjoy yourself. <laughs> in that sense, I had a sense that maybe this was an opportunity for me to make a further contribution. Yeah, and it's um, interesting, isn't it? Because there is a view uh, that elected politics, you know, certainly the House of Commons, is not the place to bring around change. You know that cliche, I think it was Tony Benn who framed it, I'm leaving Parliament to spend more time on politics. But you, I know you're an addict of politics as well as your Presbyterian instincts for public service. You clearly do see it as a way of uh, both feeding that addiction to politics and public service. Well, as I said, I've been incredibly fortunate. I've had the chance to work in some of the world's greatest universities, but I've also seen over the last few years what happens when politics fails? I've spent time in Gaziantep, the major uh, Syrian refugee camp in Turkey. I've been in Zatari, the camp in Jordan, indeed Dadaab, the world's largest refugee camp in northern Kenya. Um, just in the last um, 12 months, actually, I've travelled both to uh, Ukraine as a guest of President Zelensky's government and also to Taiwan. So um, I've not been inactive these past few years. But you're right. I do fundamentally believe that the capacity for affecting change is profound in elected office and in politics. And I fundamentally believe in public service. It's not really more complicated than that. And if you feel that burning passion, that sense that you can make a difference, then I think actually you've got a responsibility to take that very seriously. For you to experience that, obviously, uh, Labour has to win the uh, UK-wide election. Um, now, it's been extraordinary the last few weeks in Scotland. You are by no means uh, an objective observer. You're a Labour candidate for the next Westminster election. But there is a fascinating thing, and I know you love delving deep in politics and trying to make sense of it all. Are we here with the drama around the SNP, the fall of Nicola Sturgeon and what has happened since, going to be find a real example of the great test in British politics. What matters most? Big, titanic leaders, of which I think you would agree Salmon and Sturgeon were, uh, or underlying forces that are powerful irrespective of the leadership. Is this going to be a great test of that in the coming months? 
Um, well, there's quite a lot in your question and quite a lot that I might disagree with. But but let me let me say this. I think the, the, the truth is over the last 10 to 15 years, the currency of first Scottish and then British politics shifted from being primarily about economics to being primarily about culture. And I don't um, diminish the um, public service of, of SNP politicians who have served as first minister in recent years. But I would argue that what skills they've had, they've deployed in the service of dividing the nation rather than uniting the nation. And there's an essential sense here in Scotland that we've been stuck. We've been stuck for a number of years with a constitutional argument where, um, if you like, the Scottish National Party have been strong enough to win election after election by retaining that 45% of the vote that came to the yes side in 2014, but not convincing the majority of us that the best future is to um, establish a sovereign separate state here in Scotland. And in that sense, I think there is a sense that rather than using the imagery of titanic leadership, I think that the tectonic plates are actually shifting, yeah. partly because of the completely unprecedented um, kind of moral and financial collapse of the authority of the Scottish National Party. But at a more profound level, my sense is economics was also intruding back into the public conversation in Scotland in a way that hadn't been the case for a number of years, both because of the return of inflation, the sense that um, the cost of living is affecting people profoundly. I think in that sense, people are open to a different message than simply the very electorally potent, but policy light messaging that has been very electorally successful in recent years. Yeah, it was the electoral potency I was referring to, um, which of course, as you know, you know, having been part of the New Labour project, um, which won three UK general elections in a row, almost feeds on itself and gives a sense of purpose. Now, obviously, politics is much more complicated than merely winning. Um, but what I suppose I was saying is, is this a turning point? Because when, when I'm in Scotland, I speak to some people who say, I haven't been up since the dramas of recent weeks. But, um, you know, they say to me, they don't say or didn't say to me, oh, I've decided I voted for the union at the last referendum. If there's another, I'm going to vote independence. I'm fed up with Westminster, etc. So they don't say it's because I like Nicola Sturgeon. So I suppose what I was getting at is, well, I think you've answered. You said the tectonic plates are shifting. That sense that, oh, if there's another referendum, I might well go for it this time. I didn't last. You think that coinciding with or caused by the uh, seeming implosion of the SNP at the moment uh, will bring about a turning point? Well, firstly, I don't really see any immediate or medium who knows about the long term, but I don't see any prospect of a referendum um, on Scottish independence anytime soon for a very basic reason, which is notwithstanding the extraordinary catastrophe of Boris Johnson's leadership, if you were to design a politician notionally to spike support for independence, you'd probably design in a test tube someone like Boris Johnson. Notwithstanding Boris Johnson, notwithstanding Brexit, support for independence has not gone above 50%. We're broadly divided, 55-45, sometimes 50-50. But in that sense, with a quiet, stubborn determination, the Scottish people have said, we're just not having it. And, and if you like, Nicola Sturgeon deployed very considerable political communication skills to suggest that the real problem was Westminster or the real problem was the Conservatives or the real problem was the Labour Party. But the reality is, 
Support for independence on the last day of her first ministership was at exactly the same level, not 1% higher than on the day she inherited the first ministership after 2014. So um, it's been very hard for the Labour Party, but it's not particularly complicated, the electoral story of recent years in Scotland, which is if you have an extraordinary referendum as we had in Scotland in 2014, what was it, an 84.7% turnout, highest turnout since universal suffrage was introduced in the UK, people take a position and then just a few months after that referendum, you effectively relitigate the choice in that referendum through a general election. If in a first-past-the-post system you get 45% of the vote in a constituency, you win that constituency, and that was the case pretty much in every constituency in Scotland in 2015. So if you like, the prospects of a referendum, um, I think, have abated, not because of the actions elsewhere, but because with quiet determination, year after year, Scots have just said, no, actually, there are other priorities. So I don't think there's an immediate prospect of a referendum. I do think, however, though, um, what we're seeing with the demise of the SNP's public standing is an opportunity, not a guarantee, for the Scottish National Party's opponents. And of course, my principal concern and um, daily toil is support for Scottish Labour. It's an opportunity, not a guarantee, because if you're really honest about what took former Labour voters to vote yes in 2014 and then decide to place their support next to the SNP in election after election in recent years, I think you have to concede that at a certain point, they gave up on the Labour Party as a vehicle for improving their own lives, the lives of their family, the lives of their community, and vested those hopes in independence and saw the way to sustain that hope as voting for the Scottish National Party. So I think the real challenge for Scottish Labour now is not to spend our time in endless constitutional arguments, but instead to make the case for how people's lives in a very practical way will get better if Scottish Labour plays its part in delivering a Labour government whenever that general election takes place. So I think understanding what took people to yes is actually the way that you can move beyond constitutional politics and say, how can Labour be both a vessel for people's hopes and a vehicle for practical changes in their lives? And that's the work that we're focused on at the moment. Well, what did happen to Scottish Labour? I mean, in a way, it's been almost under-analysed, the scale of the collapse. What's, I mean, you were, you were a victim of it in 2015, uh, but it, it had started before then and then in, in some ways intensified. What, what's your assessment of what went wrong? Well, I think it doesn't start in 2014, but that was a critical inflection point. So just on 2014, I would say, I knew at the time I was engaged very heavily in, in those political arguments and discussions that we were witnessing something literally unprecedented, that as someone by that stage who'd spent almost what, 17, 18 years in public life, I'd never encountered anything like it. I remember when I was um, trying to get out of a taxi in the centre of Glasgow a few days before um, the referendum vote, the taxi driver saying to me, listen, if I stop the meter, will you explain the Barnett formula to me? Now, that's not normal, Steve. That's not what you expect as you step out of a taxi. And in that sense, it both energised and divided Scotland, that referendum. And then, as I say, within just a matter of months, we were straight into the 2015 general election, which was essentially a relitigation 
of that referendum. So if you want to understand why Scottish Labour went from, what, 42 to one seat in 2015, a huge part of that is the coincidence of a block of 45% of voters in a first-past-the-post system who, if you get 45% in every seat, you pretty much win every seat. That's the electoral explanation. What's the deeper political explanation that sits beneath that? I think the truth is um, we have seen a significant shift from economic to culture during those years. But but I think you have to um, ask yourself the question, what explains the rise of political nationalism over the last, not just 10 years, but 20 years or 30 years? Yeah. And actually, some reading in some work that I did when I was a senior fellow at Harvard in recent years, I found incredibly instructive in that. Because I read an article which said we've actually got two kinds of identities. We have what's called an achieved identity and an assigned identity. And this was an article all about the United States. But honestly, as soon as I read it, I thought it was such a powerful explanation as to what's happened in Scotland. And this article said to be working class in the 20th century was an achieved identity. And the attributes of that achieved identity might be that you lived in a dry and and, and well-maintained council house for the first time in your life. It might be that you owned your home for the first time in your life. You probably owned a car. You probably went on a foreign holiday for the first time in many years. And you genuinely believed that your kids were going to do better than yourself. And you probably worked with your hands in work that you felt was meaningful because you made things that mattered. That was certainly the case in Scotland, whether it was on the Clyde, whether it was shipbuilding, whether it was railway engineering, um, that was very resonant to me. But basically what this article argued was, if you like, that achieved identity was stripped away by 40 years of globalization and the forces of trade technology and liberalization that we witnessed during that period. What happens when you lose that achieved identity is not that you default to no identity, but you default to a deeper assigned identity. Now, in America's case, that's often, I'm an American. Sometimes, sadly, I am white, and and it expresses itself in racialized terms. In Scotland, I think as many working class voters felt that sense of loss, they defaulted to a deeper assigned identity, which naturally for us as proud Scots was to say I'm Scottish. And actually to understand that a big part of the appeal of political nationalism is actually about loss and belonging certainly makes a lot of sense to me, having represented in the past a a town that suffered profound deindustrialization during those decades after the Second World War. That's very interesting. And with kind of Questions that will, by the way, I want to meet your taxi driver. I hope you gave him a good tip. I want to ask about the Barnet formula. Um, yeah. I hope I, hope I get just Let me just make one other point on that, which is in 2015, I was um, working to try and hold my seat um, at the time. I was acutely aware of the churning sentiment and emotion that were surging around Scottish politics. And I remember both in my literature, on my Facebook advertising, in the speeches and appeals that I made on doorsteps and in community halls in my then constituency, I tried to match the emotion of national identity with class solidarity, talking about the fact that, if you like, the National Health Service, the word national means British rather than Scottish, trying to establish affinities between the experience of working people in South Wales or in Northern Ireland or Yorkshire with those in Scotland. 
And honestly, the feeling was, um, to use an analogy from my father's life, my father's a minister in the Church of Scotland, it was like trying to teach a congregation a hymn that they'd forgotten the words to. And in that sense, you know, during the 70s, 80s and 90s, we had lost not just nationalised industries, but large industrialised workplaces. We'd lost the sense that in most streets there was an active trade unionist or a shop steward. And in that sense, that class sense of solidarity had receded and in its place came an easy, comfortable association with the attributes and the symbols of and the pride of national identity. And that was very effectively harnessed by political nationalism to say, well, if you feel that way about Scotland, you have to be a nationalist. A previous generation of Labour politicians had been very comfortable, people like Donald Dewar or John Smith, in being proud Scottish patriots, but never being political nationalists. And if you like, every day, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon woke up and sought to break down that barrier between patriotism and nationalism with some effect. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So given that, uh, looking ahead to the next uh, UK general election, from the Labour point of view, um, how does it address some of those, um, I don't know what you want to describe them, feelings that you identified in 2015 and beyond of quite a lot of the electorate that you were facing then? In other words, is the next UK election in terms of Scotland uh, one in which you need a sort of Gordon Brown figure who was very dominant, as you know, better than anyone in the Scottish Labour Party uh, when he was so prominent. Um, and and, and that Keir Starmer's role is more marginal in Scotland because you have this issue of identifying with Scotland and Scottishness as well as being British. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, Gordon, of course, played a critical role in the referendum in 2014, but that was essentially about who we are as a nation, this is a choice of government. And in that sense, I think the character of this campaign will be very different. And I think Keir Starmer's got a critical role to play because he is really for the first time in a generation, a Labour leader who looks and sounds like a prospective prime minister and who the opinion polls suggests a whole number of people, not just in Scotland, but right across the country see as being the next prime minister. So in that sense, Keir will have a key role to play, but so will Anas Sarwar, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, um, who is out there every day making that case that if you are proudly and patriotically Scottish, you don't need to vote for the Scottish National Party, you can vote for the Scottish Labour Party. So in that sense, I think the character of the contest is different because we're choosing a government rather than choosing whether or not to separate ourselves from a 300-year-old union. And that's why, frankly, I think the role of policy will be more substantive. And frankly, I think the role of economics will be central as well as culture. So on something like Great British Energy, the publicly owned 
clean energy company that's being proposed, that's as relevant here in Scotland as it is in any other part of the United Kingdom. Freezing energy prices is going to be just as much a demand and a requirement here in Scotland as it is in any other part of the country. So in that sense, I think there are, as I've always believed, great commonalities of experience between people and constituencies in different parts of these islands. Of course, there will be distinctive Scottish voices making that case. Of course, in many seats, as in my own, we will be opposing nationalists in seeking to win the seat for Scottish Labour values. But the character of the contest is going to be very different from an election, uh, sorry, a referendum campaign that we saw in 2014. Did you speak to Gordon Brown about his proposals? He's, uh, as everyone knows, uh, was commissioned to put forward detailed proposals for devolution, in inverted commas, as well as Keir Starmer put it, uh, taking back control uh, away from Westminster. Did you speak to him about the proposals? Do you think it will, I know everything he kind of does and probably you do in terms of framing arguments is partly uh, thinking about how you counter uh, what appeared to be, and perhaps until recent weeks, the ongoing SNP potency. Uh, did, did you have uh, conversations with him about those proposals? And Of course, I've spoken to Gordon about it. But also, I think anybody who knows Gordon's history knows he was arguing the case for devolution long before the surge in political nationalism that we've seen in, in recent years. And in that sense, I think it's a disservice to Gordon to suggest, if you like, it's an electoral tactic rather than a continuation of what's been a decades-long focus on on the place of constitutional change in the kind of future that he and we want to see for the country. And in that sense, listen, I really welcome the proposals because I think any credible offer for how we change the United Kingdom has to involve economic, social and democratic renewal And actually, I would argue that if you look back to the transcendent success of Labour back in 1997 or the subsequent support that was shown in the September of 1997 in that referendum about whether to establish a Scottish parliament, it's always been a central part of a winning Labour party to argue for democratic as well as social and economic change. And a big part of the appeal of devolution now 25 years ago or more was that, if you like, it offered the prospect of Scotland not just recognising its own distinctive institutions, but being more comfortable in a more habitable, more democratic, more modernised United Kingdom. And that's the offer, I think, that we're in a position to make again, which is, if you like, these proposals that Gordon's worked on and that has won the support of Keir and the leadership reflects not just a challenge here in Scotland, but a deep sense that we need to do better, not least in the regions of uh, England, as well as the nations of the United Kingdom, in rooting that democracy and giving people real power over their lives. Yeah, and I I want to stress as well, anyone who's read those proposals would not see them merely as an electoral tactic. I wondered whether it helps frame an argument in Scotland. I think it does in the sense a big part of our appeal is recognising and contrasting that with what the nationalists have been saying. And Steve, the nationalists are very adept at using a a language and a rhetoric of hope, and it's been incredibly effective as an electoral message. And essentially, they've used a language of hope, but their currency has been despair, despair that Labour will always lose, despair that the Conservatives will always win, despair that change at a UK level is literally impossible. 
Now, that's mm. been a very potent story. It's been a powerful story in winning votes over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. That story has never been less true than it is as we record this podcast, because the prospects of change coming at a UK level are far more tangible, far more evidentially based. And at the same time, I think that's Labour's opportunity, which is to make the case that actually there is a different route to the change than walking through a door marked independence or a separate sovereign state. And if you like many voters, I think sincerely and honestly have felt the only route to change was to vote for independence. And actually we're saying there's another route to change. It's actually, we would argue, a safer, a faster, a better set of changes, but that will similarly affect and improve your lives um, in a way that you would like to see consistent with an overwhelming sense in Scotland that the country's not working and that the country should be better. And I remember you telling me every time I bumped into you in recent years that it, it absolutely fundamental was this sense that if Labour could appear to be winning at Westminster, that would change the dynamic in Scotland. So that reinforces what you've just said. On that front, I know uh, you are now a candidate and uh, focusing solely on that and won't want to appear to be giving lofty advice to those who've been toiling at Westminster in recent years for the Labour Party from the leadership downwards. But I, I wanted to ask you about something that you've had kind of direct experience of, really, and that's past general elections, because there's this discussion, which is partly contrived, but sheds some light as to where we are, that is this 92, is it closer to 97, and all the rest of it? Um, could it be the hung parliament of 2010, and so on? I remember you telling me an extraordinary, sort of almost Shakespearean story of after the 92 election, I think you met Gordon Brown, who you were very close to, uh, I think you met in a cemetery, didn't you, after that defeat in 92? Which That's true. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Now, why did Labour lose that one? Here they, you know, there was a new Tory Prime Minister, John Major, hence the parallels that some are making now. What, why, when you and Gordon were reflecting in that cemetery? Uh, <laughs> well, let me first of all offer a little context before the, the headline runs away from the story. The truth is I, I had... Um, travelled with Gordon um, and and worked with him during that 1992 election campaign. He was the regional affairs spokesman. And so we travelled the length and breadth of the country, including, I have to say, the Sheffield Rally, where Donald Dewar sat uh, next to me and said, this is going to be a complete disaster, Douglas, which was one of Donald's wiser judgments in terms of the Sheffield Rally. But anyway, on the eve of poll, his final television interview um, which was actually uh, not on the eve of poll, sorry, on the day immediately following polling day, was in the Cannon Mills churchyard in Edinburgh. And that overlooked what was due to be the Scottish Assembly, now the Scottish Parliament, the Royal High School in Edinburgh. Right. So the breakfast television company had said, listen, we want to angle the camera so that we can see the Royal High School in the background, which we presume will be the seat of the new Scottish Assembly if Labour wins in 1992. Now, of course, we lost, and it turns out that we found ourselves standing in the Cannon Mills graveyard with no prospect of a democratic parliament anytime soon. But the real significance of that story is, immediately from that interview, I returned home to my parents' house, and I remember watching the three-party election broadcast that day, the day after we'd lost the election, showing Neil Kinnock speaking and just being in despair as to yeah. why as as energised and passionate a leader as that had been found wanting by the British people. 
But while I was um, managing my grief at the loss of the election campaign, Gordon in Edinburgh got on a train, travelled down um, to Sedgefield and went for a walk across the fields in Sedgefield. He was picked up at the train station by Nick Brown, taken to meet Tony Blair, and they went off for a walk across the fields. And their judgment uh, together that morning was that the defeat made the case for more change, not less, in the Labour Party. And in that sense, that was one of the conversations of which there were thousands that contributed to a sense of project, a sense of determination, and a shared vision as to how Labour needed to change more to win the trust of the British people. So when I reflect on what lessons do I draw from 1992, one of the lessons I would say would be all the good work that Rachel Reeves and our colleagues Pat McFadden and others are doing now is a non-negotiable if you want to be judged to be a prospective party of government and then actually to win the election. And that there is no trade-off between the radicalism of your ambitions and the credibility of your plans. Because if you're judged to be incredible in your plans on sound money, on the public finances, on the ability to manage the public finances, then you're never given the permission of the public to deliver the radical policies that you want to see. There's a curious paradox, if you like, the more the public trust you, the more they trust you to be radical. And in that sense, the lesson I draw from 1992 is that the critical work that Kieran and his colleagues have been doing over the last three years is utterly fundamental and explanatory, actually, to the poll leads that have been secured. They're not a nice to have, they're essential, and they're not coincidental to the fact that when people have turned away with horror from Liz Trust or from Boris Johnson, they've looked on a Labour Party where they think, actually, not just we have a sense as to what's in their heads, but we're beginning to trust what's in their guts. And that's a critical, almost instinctive judgment that if you don't get right, people will not come with you. I heard an interview with uh, David Miliband the other day, and he, he said um, uh, that New Labour now would be to the left of New Labour then, because the scale of the challenges are greater, inequality has widened. Now, who knows whether he's right about that, but that is certainly his view. Um, and it, and yet I sense sometimes that the uh, current Labour leadership are following the new Labour of the mid-1990s. Do you think uh, it needs to be different from 97. And and to put it as uh, David did in that interview, to the left of New Labour in 1997. Of course it needs to be different because the, the challenges, the context, the politics of 2023, 2024, 2025 are profoundly different from the politics of 1994, 95, 96 or 97. And if you like, I have no interest in partying like it's 1999. I'm much more interested in a Labour Party that faces the future and the challenges of the next decade rather than looking back. So I think, you know, I, I find ancestor worship deeply uninteresting as a political philosophy. It doesn't hold any appeal. And I think what's exciting about what's happening in the Labour Party, why in my own way I hope to make a contribution by turning one of the seats um, that we need into a Labour gain is not a kind of restoration project, but a renewal. It's about looking forward, not looking backwards. And in that sense, I don't make any apology for saying, of course, there may be insights that can be garnered from our from our history, but we should understand our history, but not be 
imprisoned by it or captured by it. And actually, I think if you were to draw up a ledger of accounts in terms of our domestic performance economically, I think those new labour years were very effective at dealing with inequality at the bottom and not nearly effective enough at dealing with inequality at the top. And if you like, that wasn't a lack of political will, but it was a judgment at the time that um, tackling inequality at the top was actually harder than I think it would have been. But what do you mean by inequality at the top? I, I think there was I think there was a sense that we were in a position to um, effectively redistribute the public expenditure into Sure Start centres in England, into schools and hospitals across the whole of the UK, and we honourably and progressively redistributed those benefits. I don't think that there was perhaps the degree of ambition that there should have been, either in terms of the structure of the economy or in terms of the damaging effects of the degree of inequality that has taken hold. Frankly, if you look at the gains from a modern economy and how many of them accrue to um, those who sell their labour or those who um, are owners of capital, I think you would you would be very hard, certainly if you've got my politics, to argue anything other than that we need a strong and dynamic trade union movement, if you like, to level the bargain and to ensure that we see a fairer return for um, the, the income that's being generated. So in that sense, I think um, New Labour was a product of its time and the Starmer government, if we are successful in winning the trust of the British people in the years ahead and winning the election, will I genuinely believe and hope be a product of its times. And the character of those times are different. The nature of the political leadership is different. And so in that sense, I think that's a pretty easy question to answer, which is, will you know any government led by Keir Starmer simply be a, an echo of, of New Labour? Absolutely not. It will be, it will be a product of a, a political consensus forged in the coming months if we're successful in doing that, an electoral consensus we hope that change is necessary, but also with a keen sense as to what are the public policy challenges that we face over the next decade, not the challenges that we faced three decades ago. And finally, I mean, just to return to the SNP, because it is astonishing. I mean, who knows what's going on? Uh, uh, there's an ongoing investigation, and uh, none of us can even speculate aloud. But have you been taken aback by events? Like we all, I mean, we all were, or some of us were critical of Liz Truss, but we were still taken aback that she was gone within a month. Have you, I'm, and I'm not comparing the SNP to Liz Truss, it's wholly different, but it's comparable in terms of, to me anyway, just how surprising the unravelling has been so quickly and dramatic and vivid. Uh, same with you? I think most of us here in Scotland have looked on, not just with horror, but within, with incredulity, genuine incredulity as to what we're witnessing on our television screens and reading on our phones. And I wouldn't pretend that I fully anticipated what was going to befall the SNP um, in, in the last couple of months. But I think I think what we're witnessing, if you like, is a coincidence of policy failure and something much deeper and much more profound in terms of how that party operated. Because goodness knows I am no supporter and never was of Liz Trust or our economics policies. But if you like, that the, the 
culpability there was one of profound political misjudgment with catastrophic policy consequences for all of us in the country. What we're witnessing in terms of the SNP is something in many ways that is um, a slower burn, has clearly not been something that's happened just overnight, but will have um, profound implications, I think, going forward. I think some of the sites that we've seen in the last couple of months will not be easily or quickly forgotten by electors here in Scotland. But as I say, just because people are selling nationalism doesn't mean that they're buying Labour. Our task as Labour candidates, our task as the Scottish Labour Party, is, if you like, to recognise and share the incredulity and the horror that people feel, the sense of betrayal, frankly, that a lot of SNP voters must be feeling as they watch what's become of their party, and say respectfully and sincerely, we want to earn your trust. We want to evidence to you in the months and weeks ahead that there is change that can be achieved and ways that your life can be improved by having a Labour government. And I think if we go into the coming election with a message that says, make sure it's Labour this time, meaning let's make sure we play our part here in Scotland in getting rid of the Conservative government and then delivering a Labour programme across the United Kingdom, I think that has the potential to have a potency as a message, which we haven't seen for many years here in Scotland. Douglas Alexander, thank you very much for joining us. So there we are. That's uh, Douglas Alexander on uh, the situation in Scotland at the moment on the rise of the SNP, the potential fall of the SNP, as he hopes, um, the dramatic decline of the Labour Party in Scotland and what he hopes will be a rise and reflections on UK-wide Labour defeats and victories. As I say, there's something about that image of him and Gordon Brown in that graveyard that has remained with me. He told me about it some time ago. Anyway, yeah, well, there's a lot else going on as well, isn't there, at the moment? That inflation figure, food inflation in the UK, 19, is it, percent? Something like that, 17, 19. Anyway, high, high, high. Why? What is the difference between the UK and other European countries with lower inflation? I think we know the answer to that. Anyway, I don't know what we uh, reflect on next week or what you will be reflecting on, but I look forward to hearing from you. Um, oh, yeah, see some of you in Brighton on Monday night at the Old Market uh, Theatre. We will be delving deep and having fun as well. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, the tickets for that will be with the blurb for this podcast. And if you could, if you want to do so, please leave a review, but only if you like this podcast. Not this specific one, but generally, generally, the more reviews, the better, as long as they're good ones. Anyway, have a good time and let's get together soon to make sense of it all. Mm-hmm.